There's a change happening in the way we live, the way we work, the way we spend our money and make our decisions. We are evolving to be more conscious in our actions in a way that serves the world and makes it a better place. Welcome to The Ethical Evolution. The Ethical Evolution podcast is brought to you by The Ethical Change Agency. I'm Bindi, CEO and founder, and I am honoured to bring you the stories of those who create change through paying it forward and giving back. Ethical business owners and holistic healers who are determined to create collective change in the world. Once we have a change in consciousness and through collective change, we can become one. When I recently found myself going down a media rabbit hole surrounding the death of George Floyd during an arrest in the USA and the subsequent global riots, protests and solidarity around the Black Lives Matter movement, I could feel the energy of a generation of pain. I wondered what I could do to help spark a collective change in consciousness that could make us question our beliefs, mindset and bias we unknowingly carry and most of all wake us up. This is the first step. Two amazing women came to mind and if you're a regular listener of the Ethical Evolution podcast, you would have heard them previously. Reverend Cherie Taylor-Jones and Roshana Price both live in the USA on opposite sides of the country. They both experience growing up black in America and do amazing work in the world when it comes to adult bullying, beliefs, thought patterns and mindset. So it was a no-brainer that I got these two sisters together on our mission of collective change to have the conversation that needs to be had. Welcome uh, Roshana and Reverend Cherie to The Ethical Evolution. We're really excited to be here. Yes, we are. Now, you've both been on the, the podcast previously, um, and which is, you know, one of the reasons why I brought you back, but you're also our custodians of collective change. But I wanted to bring you both together because there's a lot happening in our world at the moment. We've, we've had a, a really big 2020 so far. Um, we've been dealing with COVID-19 globally. And now uh, with the racial tension that's been happening in the States, and that has started to escalate globally as well. I thought I'd bring the two of you together. Now, you are both on opposite sides of the United States, which is absolutely incredible in itself, Um, but you're both coming from very kind of similar backgrounds in that you help people break through things like bullying and, and mindset and beliefs. And I think a lot of what you both do can really um, help impact um, people's mindset at the moment. So... Um, what we might do is just do a little roundtable to start with and share who we are and what we do for those um, who haven't heard you on the podcast or seen you before. So we might start with Reverend Cherie. You want to give us a little recap of who you are and what you do? Sure. How could you miss the previous episode? Where were you guys? I know, right? (laughs) Anyway, I'm Reverend Cherie Taylor-Jones and um, my ministry is at preachitsister.com. And you don't say it like that. You go, preach it, sister. That's right, sister. That's, yes. that's where you'll preach find it. Yeah. 
And my mission is to allow people to look at their belief systems. You know, we come on to this planet and be our light and love. And then we get indoctrinated into so many rules and regulations with our family systems, then our school systems, then our work systems, that often we forget our own truth. And so my mission is to give people the opportunity to first even be aware that some of the beliefs that they have aren't even theirs. It's been passed down through generations and then have the ability to just pause and breathe into, is this a belief that is serving me? And if it's not, then what do I do? How do I create something that is really meaningful that I can thrive in my life? So that's my main core mission. I've also um, gotten the bug for podcasting now from my friend Bindi there. And so now I have a podcast that is called Belief Busters Podcast. Um, And so it really looks at different beliefs that we have. And I break down, I'm going to have guests on based on topics or what's going on. And and we actually have a discussion on how did you move from this old belief to a new belief? So that's my mission in a snapshot. Oh my God, I love it. (laughs) Me too. I'm like, yes. (laughs) And Roshona. Yes. So I'm the giver of awesomeness. It's the official registered trademark that I have. And it is a mission to help every single person understand that they have hidden gifts and talents that I call their awesomeness that need to come out into the world. And that a lot of times adult bullying, adversity, conflict are the ways in which the world is trying to tell you you have something. I like to say when a bully shows up or when they come into your life, it's a sign and it's actually a gift that they're bringing you to help you understand that you have awesomeness. And when you know what your awesomeness is, you can guard it from awesomeness stealers and shift it or pivot it into an area where you can give it to the world around you. Oh, awesome. That is who I am and that's what I do. Yeah. Love that. Love it. And, you know, the conversations we've previously had have been life-changing, really, and and now you guys are connected as well. So we're just one big happy family right now. I'm loving it. Um, so I'm got calling t- us the dynamic duo now, okay, oh. just so that you know. Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Yes. <laughs> we're, we're high-fiving through the screen globally. Yes. Um, so... Um, I have to talk about a serious topic, though, guys. Um, I mean, there's there's a lot going on in our world, as I said at the moment. And um, in recent weeks, um, the the death of George Floyd uh, in the states has has really just sparked up so much emotion, and uh, you know, um, everybody's questioning their place in the world and um, their beliefs as well. Um, trust has gone out the window. Um, and a lot of people are wondering, um, you know, if they're actually safe, um, particularly if uh, you are black. Um, I have seen a lot of uh, people actually saying that they actually fear um, that they are not safe uh, if they go out. Um, I want to get your your experience um, growing up in America and how it was different for you. Mm. Okay. Which one of us? <laughs> I'll yeah. start with you, Reverend Sheree. Okay. Um, it's interesting because 
the way that I self-identify is a little um, not the norm, whatever mm-hmm. the norm is. Um, and that's because I was born in London, England. Mm-hmm. And then when I was eight, I migrated to the States. And it was a big culture shock, um, that, that migration to here. And I've, I think I've always felt a little out of sync um, growing up. I didn't really feel like I fit into the label of African-American. And I didn't feel like I fit into any other particular category. And I think my, my childhood was... Um, you know, when, when you talk, Roshana, about bullies and things like that, well, when you don't fit in a particular category, you know, and you mm-hmm. don't have this sense of belonging, wow, are you like target on your back and let's go. It's like, um, yeah. And wow, I am just, I must be really awesome because I had a lot of gifts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as a child, it's, it's um, very anxiety producing. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being in fear most of the time um, outside of my home. And um, it's, it's a tough, for me, it felt like it was a tough place to be, not black enough. And, um, you know, what are you pretending that you're a white girl? You know, so it, it really um, was a, a just t- tough. So um, for me, it's like I was academically gifted. Um, and so for me, it was just like, okay, I just want to learn as much as I can possibly learn, you know, and I was like this little sponge. And so for me, there wasn't the hanging out. I wasn't a social kind of kid on the block. You know, I was the nerd and the geek. So um, I remember actually in um, my teen, so my elementary life, I was in a parochial school, a Catholic school, you know, I'm one of the few black kids in the in the Catholic school. And then when I got to high school, I was bussed out from my neighborhood to a gifted school that was all white with, once again, a few little black kids, you know, and it was an academically gifted program. Um, so talk about really not um, knowing, you know, where I belonged. And high school was the first time that I saw systemic and was part of uh, systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had stuff before, but it was like more like kids being obnoxious. But when I got to the high school level, it was a system um, where you, where you experienced teachers being biased, you know, and, and kids being biased and their parents. So um, yeah, it wasn't a feeling of safety growing up for me. And, you know, I come from the suburbs. I grew up on Long Island, <laughs> if I say it in the right dialect. Um, so, you know, I'm not a hood girl and I didn't feel safe. Yeah. And how about you, Rashona? Yeah, I'm going, mm, because I saw you shaking. Yeah, there's some similarity. <laughs> so I grew up in white suburbia in upstate New York and was one of maybe there were 10, maybe 15 black kids in my graduating class from high school. I went to black church. So the staple of like being black and growing up, I lived a very white life, had great friends. My, one of my closest friends was Italian and we would go and eat and have pierogies and all of that and, and enjoyed that, was, was welcomed into that culture. And then also would go to church and be and be in black church and 
hey, I grew up AME and we, it, it was a definite staple in my life and faith and all of that. And my parents grew up in the South. So in the segregated South, mm. my dad from Arkansas and my mom from Florida. So I understood that, that they had worked really hard for us to live the American dream. So I grew up in the suburbs with the white picket fence and the pool in the backyard and went to school and for the most part felt safe. I actually had experiences of being bullied by other black kids, right. not other white kids. Yeah. And in this time, and even in the things that we're talking about that have happened, there's definitely a narrative of police brutality and white versus black crime and all of that. There are also other stories because it's a very, race is very complex in what it looks like and how people experience it. And some of that is just because of for, for how we all kind of got to the U.S. The U.S. culture in and of itself is very complex because of that. Mm. So for me, I grew up very safe in my home, very safe in my community. I had an understanding of who I was and knew from a very early age, probably fifth or sixth grade, that if I was going to be whole and healthy, I needed to find friends in people that were kind and good to me. And then I went to historically black college where I had the black experience. I, I enjoyed North Carolina A&T and, and that's when I had my first black teacher. And I knew that, that that was a thing because my dad was an educator. So I knew that, that it mattered to have an educator, someone who looked like you. I didn't have that personal experience until I went to North Carolina A&T and that shaped my education. I was a much better student in college than I was K, K through 12. And I do, do believe some of that was because there were just some times where it was like there were no there were limited expectations as to what I could do or what I would accomplish from some of the teachers. And I don't even think they realized it. I just think it was a part of how it was or or you had to look a certain way to be in the AP classes. And so therefore, no one pushed you to be in it. Yeah. And particularly for you, Rashawn, I know you, you've got kids. Um Oh, how, how, what are the conversations you're having with your kids at the moment with what's going on, um, you know, with the riots and all of that kind of stuff? Like, what, are they afraid? No, they're not afraid um, because we've done two things. We've tried to keep our home structure very safe for them and to keep them as kids. So we have not been a part of the protests in the Charlotte area where we're from or the area that we live outside of the major city. We've talked to our son, who's 12, about George Floyd specifically mm-hmm. and the fact that bad people did bad things. And, and that's what it is. And it's a heart matter. We've talked about that a lot so that he understands. My daughter is nine and we haven't talked to her a lot about it because the community that we live in is diverse and, and she's one of a, a minority and, and she has friends that are white. And so if I say to her that she is different, I'm imprinting that into her. Absolutely. And the truth is, is right now as a nine-year-old, all she knows is kids can play with me or they can't, they're busy or they're not. <laughs> yeah. And, and there is something around keeping that innocence until it has to be something that's a different conversation for her. So she understands that she's the, you know, that she's, we, we talk about being brown, right? Like, so you're, you're, you're brown and that your hair is a little different, but that doesn't mean that you can't swim. That doesn't mean that you can't go over this person's house. That means that doesn't mean that they can't come over our house and that they can't go on vacation with us. 
And so we talk about all of those things so that they have, so that they can be secure in who they are, no matter where they are. Mm. Such a great approach. And and uh, as you you know, uh, previously uh, when we've spoken, uh, I had my nephew uh, here with me yeah. last time and uh, he was actually really quite moved by um, what you'd said about bullying and, and uh, he was actually here last weekend and he, he brought up the subject of George Floyd and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> we're going to have this conversation now. <laughs> um, so, you know, kids are talking about this kind of stuff and it does impact it. their opinions and, and, and what they're thinking about. And um, so I guess um, coming back to you, Reverend Cherie, um, what kind of conversations are you having with people at the moment around um, what's happening in the States? Well, I think they're varied. Um, so my theology um, is around new thought. So what that means is I do metaphysical interpretation instead of literal interpretation of the Bible, and I'm more focused on the evolution of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting is other um, ministers that I, that are colleagues or I know personally or, or friends, you know, we're having the conversations and Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. It's, it's, we, so I'm going to be global. We talk a good game. Mm. We talk about love. We talk about inclusion. You know, we talk about oneness. That's not always outpictured, though, yeah. you know. Um, so it's been really an interesting. I, sometimes I feel like a little bug watching, you know, how they're evolving with what's going on. And mm-hmm. for the most part, I've been nicely surprised. You know, they're they're asking about how can I take action? What actions can I take? Um, you know, how am I going to, um, am I going to speak about this on Sunday? You know, yes. for a lot of um, ministers in this remit, they won't bring life issues into service on Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really nice to hear a lot of them were talking about racism, you know, when they were talking about oppression and what is ours to do and how do we, you know, make a difference? And I was just like, yes, rock on, you know, finally. And there are also, you know, some, some colleagues that are just like, it's all about love. It, it's all about peace. There shouldn't be any violence or oppressed. You know, that's not the way to do it. Um, so, you know, it, it does run the gamut, even with the folks that um, I think I know really well. And what I'm excited about is we're having the conversations. Mm. That's huge. That's huge. We're not just in our, this is my lane. I'm going to just stay in this lane and I don't know anything about racism or privilege. So I'm not going to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. Um, And, you know, like today I had a Facebook conversation with someone who was, um, I quoted Al Sharpton from the memorial um, that I watched the previous day for George Floyd. And one of the things that struck me was he said, some people are choosing peace and some people are choosing quiet. And I thought, Ooh, Mm. that's really significant. Now what you need to know is I'm not an Al Sharpton fan. I'm not, but I can hear, you know, the call. I can hear the call anyway. So I posted that on Facebook and one of my colleagues um, 
really just kind of blasted about Al Sharpton and that, you know, he's all about divisiveness. And, you know, inside I went, (laughs) but I knew that this was a wonderful opportunity for a conversation. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting to, for, for me to hear, like he felt that Sharpton didn't do what his job was, which was to bring closure and comfort to the family at the memorial. Mm -hmm. That's what he saw his job to be, you know, and I was able to say, well, you know, if we focus on Al, a personality, you know, we miss out on the real conversation, which is this person was dehumanized and murdered. And, and then what is, our, what is ours now to do with that? You know, do we focus on Al's um, personality? He's a, he's a shocker. That's what his job is. I get that. So do we focus on that or do we focus on this is a call. This is a mark in the sand globally. Mm. Hear that. It's not just like in Atlanta or Minneapolis. This is global. Yeah. And we have this amazing opportunity to talk about race, talk about police brutality and question our beliefs around this. This is what we're doing. What do we believe? Do we believe that black bodies are, it's acceptable for them to be brutalized and tortured for something as trivial as a $20 counterfeit bill? Is that the value of someone's life? Um, And so we have now this opportunity to really have these discussions and say, you know what? That belief no longer serves me. That's not right. What am I going to do? How am I going to now create this world that I want my black brothers and sisters, my brown brothers and sisters, my Hispanic brothers and sisters, whatever, to be on equal footing of society. That's the juiciness right now. Wow. I didn't preach, did I? I tried not you to did. Preach, you but. did. You did, girlfriend. It's good. It's good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, wow. Yeah. Yes. That just... Uh, you've just left me speechless, which doesn't happen very often. Um, I yeah, I have to say, something has shifted. Um, so from that moment, and I was thinking this morning, and I don't know whether it's a relevant thought, um, but I wonder if this change would have sparked if we hadn't just been through a pandemic where we've been through so much change in our lives and we were, we were practically locked up for I don't know how long and now this has happened and we've taken a whole new mindset that there's just some things we won't accept anymore. And I wonder if this would have been different if COVID hadn't happened. What's your thoughts on that? I've thought about that and had conversations with people about that. The, the truth is the emotional, if we all have an emotional trash can, it was already really full mm. before this. Totally. Because, and if we kind of even go back to the start of 2020, it started with a tragedy, whether you loved him or not, Kobe Bryant's death, the helicopter accident shook the world because it happened so tragically because of his legacy and the work that he had done, whether you followed basketball or not, there Mm. there was this moment of like, 
here one day, gone the next, right? Like a group of people got onto a helicopter with the expectation from over 200 people that they were going to arrive and they didn't. And then it was like, it reverberated across the world. And then it was the pandemic that was starting and this uncertainty. And and then it, it was the, we had fires in Australia. We had just, we've had all of these things. So the emotional trash can, mm. full, 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 full. <clears throat> then you say to people, you have to stay in your house and you have to stay, stay locked in and you can't go here. And so then there's people that are feeling like, well, you're now you're taking away my liberty and my rights, et cetera. And then this happened. And then it's, it's a mod and it, it's just, it's one person after another pretty quickly within a month. Mm. And so there's only so much that the human body and the psyche can take before it goes, you know what? Enough is enough. And my dad is 71 and and my best friend's mom is 80. And so there are some, especially in the U.S. that grew up in the South, there are some that are going, we're almost coming full circle. Yeah. Some of the pictures that you see of police that are in the full body armor and they're coming in to separate out and to, to gas people and all of that is what we saw in the sixties. And, and there are many going, I didn't think I would see this again in my lifetime. And even that triggers something in the mind. And you have to think every single person, like my dad told me his stories of drinking from the colored only water fountain and going to the colored only pool and watching his friend drown because you didn't get taught how to swim. And like my parents didn't know how to swim, even though we had a pool in our backyard. So I'm only one generation away from a segregated United States. Mm. Um, So that's how this happens. And that's how we get here. And that's why I believe this is, this is happening and has been a part of like, yeah, COVID played a role. COVID was, I would say the stacking Mm. that allowed this to then just become a big powder keg. Mm. And, you know, there's been so many deaths in custody globally that we don't hear yes, about. that we don't hear about. And mm-hmm. now they're all starting to bubble up because oh. nobody spoke about it. We're now having those conversations that didn't happen before. People are getting the awareness of what's actually going on. And I heard something really interesting the other day because I went down the rabbit hole. I got stuck in the news and I just went, oh, God, what did I do that for? But... um. They were talking about, and I was actually listening to the people who were out there protesting, and they were saying that, you know, America was built on on slavery and um, that's in the roots of the lawmakers. So that's why, you know, a lot of them have this mindset um, that, that, you know, treating people that way is okay. Um, but really, you know... I think everyone's lives matter, regardless our colour. Um, and I think this has really raised equality up um, to a point where it really needs to be visible globally. What's your thoughts there? Reverend Cherie? Reverend? Yeah, it's, um, it is a, a hot button in that... Um, Okay, so I'm going to just mention the All Lives Matter mm-hmm. because I've, I can't not. Right. Um, so when you say All Lives Matter, yes, 
they do. And the reason that the tag is Black Lives Matter is because they've been treated so long yeah. as if they don't. Yeah. So that's why the emphasis right now is on Black Lives Matter. And there have been a couple of analogies that have really been um, helpful in me getting it. it. One of them was about the uh, uh, houses on fire and you call, you know, the fire department to come and, and put out the fire in that house. And you don't say, hey, but what about my house? My house, you know, why aren't you putting the hose on my house? Well, your house isn't on fire, right? So there's no need for it. So it's, it's the same way with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a call of awareness to say we do matter. We've been treated horribly for generations, hundreds of years, and we want to bring your consciousness to that fact and to remind you that we have value, Absolutely. that we're human, mm. you know? So I, I just really didn't want that to pass by. Yeah. And um, I hope you're okay with what I said. Yeah, totally. Okay. Um, racism has been in the U.S., yes, like you said, for a long time. It's the roots of this society on so many systems. The economic system is, is, is rooted in this. Um, and the economic system is um, king here in the U.S. So if you're at the bottom of the totem pole in this um, uh, economic well-being, um, you are treated as a second-class citizen. And one of the things that I really love about Donald Trump is that he's brought the awareness to the light. So I'm not saying that I love Donald. <laughs> I am saying that I can see the divine the moment for Donald to be doing exactly what he's doing. He's perfection in that he just cuts the society of America open and you see the guts, the blemishes, the rawness of racism and injustice and people in power and privilege. And we have the opportunity now to look at this, to not pretend, oh, racism doesn't exist anymore. Oh, that was the thing of the 60s. We marched and that's all done. No, this is beautiful because we now see the truth. Here it is, clear as day, racism exists. And we as a people, human people, have the opportunity to go, is this who I want to be? Is this the belief that I want to have outpictured in the world that we create together? This now is our moment of truth, our moment of creation. We are now in the space of being co-creators for the world that we want in our hands right here, right now, we get to do this work. And I'm like, I'm grateful. 
And I really believe that we as a people have said yes to being here, alive, now, at this time, doing the work that we're doing on so many different levels. And it takes all of us, the ones who are really radical, necessary, the ones who are the peacekeepers, necessary, the ones who are going to speak to it with love, necessary, the ones who are angry about it, necessary. We are all necessary to shift this for once and for all. And it's not like I'm passionate about it. Obviously not. <laughs> I'm like, she's preaching. Yes. She's preaching. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, because the belief, the thought, the belief that you have drives your thought and then that drives your action. Yes. And so to your point, it's the understanding that now we have to look each, every person has to go into the mirror and really search their heart, really search what it is that they do, where they go, how they move in their daily life. And it's easy to build your life around the people and the things that are easy and comfortable, especially if you have privilege, because you have more choices around what you can and can't do, what you can and can't buy, where you can and can't live, et cetera. And the truth is, is that being Black in America, you have choices. However, depending on how much money you have, where you live, and then just depending on the day or who you may encounter, those choices can quickly be taken from you. The truth is, is that I could, my husband, my son, in our neighborhood, if we cross the wrong person who questions if we live here, their, our lives could be in jeopardy or someone could feel like, well, they're being you know, a vigilante or they're the one being the local neighborhood watch. And so they're going to keep the neighborhood safe mm. because for so long <clears throat> in the United States, what was good, what was right, what was pure, what was clean was not a black person. That was the, that's, and that, that was the rhetoric. Mm. And so understanding that, and that is historical and that that is passed down and it's generational. And I think it's powerful that we start talking about it because I've been to Africa. I've stood in the doorway of no return off of the Cape, off of um, Sigori Island, off of Senegal, off the coast of Senegal, where slave boats would come in. I've listened to the curator talk about how when they were taking slaves and they were bringing them in, they would separate families and they would put men in one place and they would put women in another place and children in another place. And they would always take one man, one of the strongest, and they would kill him and hang him by his thorax, like right from the center, as the example for the other slaves so that they wouldn't misbehave. And then they would auction off, auction just like cattle or any other livestock stock, they would auction off the men first based on their build, based on how they looked, their statue, if they were going to be strong workers and if they thought they would survive the boat ride. So their health played a part. And then for women, it was based on their breast size and if they thought they would be able to, re to have more children so they could have more slaves. All of that is rooted in the DNA and in the history of who is in America today, both as slaves and as free. And that, that's a part of it. That's how when people say, well, how does this happen? How does this happen? It's because at the end of the day, if you have one group of people 
while they may be individuals going, I care if in their DNA or in their heart somewhere, they can see another man and see them as an animal or less than human in some way, then that's how we get here. Wow. These are the conversations that need to happen. That's incredible. Um, yeah, you, you guys should be on the news over there, not, not those people, <laughs> seriously. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm just blown away. Um, speaking of um, uh, growing up uh, in America as black and, and the fear, I was watching a, a TED talk and I think his name was Clint Smith. Um, he uh, told the story about how, um, you know, he, he, was, he was taught to, to have that fear. He was telling the story about he and his friends were in a hotel car park and they had uh, water uh, guns and they were chasing each other around with these water guns. And his father grabbed him and pulled him aside and said, you need to know you can't do that because it, all it takes is one person to understand that you're different and that you can't do that because it might not be a water gun. And anyway... Um, he was brought up to live in fear to the point where if he got pulled over by a policeman, he would have uh, a routine that he would go through to make sure he was safe. He would pull up under a streetlight, make sure there were cameras around or there was someone around who could see. He would make sure that he already had his licence and registration pulled out and on the dashboard and his hands on the wheel so that it didn't appear he was reaching for anything. So to have that mindset and go through your life with that, it's going to be crippling. And no doubt you've both got friends that have experienced this. Have you, have you got any um, insights in that? Well, I don't think that it's crippling. It's adapting. Mm. It's adapting to the world that we live in. Um, it's... Our world is different. We are looked at differently. And so knowing that means that there are certain things that we have to be aware of if we want to survive. I mean, that's how um, my parents, you know, taught the rules. So same rules for um, women of color. You're pulled over. You try to be in like a gas station or somewhere where there's other people. You um, put your hands on the steering wheel you are exceedingly polite and deference. I mean, that's the way that I was taught. Mm. Um, I even had the conversation not that long ago. I was in, um, in California. And one of the things in California that they don't do is they don't just give you plastic bags to carry your things in. And I was in this conundrum like, well, this goes against my training because you need to have the bag to prove that you purchased the items, people. How am I going to get out of the store? How am I going to get out of the store without being pulled over by security or a police officer? You know, and it was a whole new way of really like looking at this belief that I've been indoctrinated into mm-hmm. and understanding that the indo- indoctrination was from my family to keep me safe. That's what they felt that I needed to know in order to be safe. And I have to say that some of them still resonate and make sense. Mm. You know, for me, 
in the world that I walk in. So what that means is, okay, I don't have to have a bag, but I sure as hell I'm going to have the receipt in my hand as I'm walking out the door with these goods not in a bag. So, yeah, there's, there's a different way of walking in the world um, that we have to adapt to because we know that there's a separate, there's separate rules. Once that you are a person of color and anyone who is white privileged that has a bias, you could be stopped just because of the color of your skin. And it's not a male only thing. You mm. know, I, I understand our brothers are under attack, but let me tell you, women face it a lot more and it's sexualized. Mm. So let's, let's go there as well. Mm. You know, that's part of our reality. And so, um, I don't think that we walk in fear. We just walk in the knowledge of what's possible and how do I comport myself in the best way possible. Mm. Roshana, what's your experience? So my experience is a little bit, there's a little bit of the whole store thing because I was with a friend of mine in Target and we both checked out with our bags and then she went over to the dollar section, like to like reshop. And I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> right. She's a, she's a white woman. I love her. And I am like mortified. I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, what? I, I want to, I might buy something else. And I was like, I would never. And it opened up a whole conversation. She was like, I never thought that she's like, I, I didn't, I would never think somebody was thinking I was stealing. And I was like, yeah, you would totally like, that was my first thought. Like, you're going to be accused of being stealing, of stealing something. And then we're, here we go. And so it's that lens. And when we think about fear, fear as an emotion is a, it's a hierarchy. And there are all these sub emotions under fear. There's apprehension, there's timidness, there's nervousness, there's stress, there's anxiety. And what happens is because we teach our children, or, or if we teach our children, especially at an age where they really can't process it in a way that is healthy, what, they, what happens is, is if you say to your child, and one of the, one of the things, reasons I haven't talked to my nine-year-old daughter, and I've, we've only said so much to my son, is because if I say to you, you have to be careful where you go and who you're around because the color of your skin makes you different then depending on how they process that, that could make them apprehensive, mm. which is which may not show up right away as fear. However, when they're going for their job interview or when they're asked to give a speech or when they have an opportunity to stand out and be a leader, that's when the fear comes because it's apprehension in their ability to do it. Can I do it? What happens if I do it? What will people say if I stand out? Is my life in jeopardy? And so we have to be careful. And that is how, when I think about how racism, injustice, and even how privilege shows up, it's in the understanding that in the subconscious mind, there is a lot of baggage related to how people that have been oppressed, Black people, brown people, et cetera, have been oppressed. It's in the understanding that in ways that others are able to just perform as a given, there are others who have to work to overcome in order to get there, to perform at the same level or higher. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's powerful, Rashana. And I, I, I also want to just tag on that in that, Please. you know, I remember having to go to so much 
therapy and counseling and whatever mm-hmm. else, you know, that I needed to do to shift my mindset. Um, and I get why they did what they did. You know, they mm-hmm. were really trying to protect me. And, um, but then there's a lot of undoing to be able to stand in my truth and in my power and talk and be that leader. So yeah, Absolutely. I commend you on the way that you're, you're choosing you know, when that child's mind is capable of processing, you know, but I think in our generation, that really wasn't an option, to be honest. Yeah, which we haven't touched on the different generations and how that affects what this looks like across. There's been a lot of conversation in terms yeah. of there are a lot of millennials and Gen Zers that are protesting and rioting and in the workplace, we know Gen Zers across the globe want their employers to be globally minded and mission focused and have advocacy. And, and that's a part of their DNA of the Gen Z. That wasn't necessarily a part of baby boomers. It was like you do a job, you get paid for it and you go home. And if you get involved, great. And if you don't, who cares? Just pay me. And, and even that gap in how we process what's happening or how we have conversations about what companies should do that are large, that have voice, how they get involved or don't, who they put on their brand, who they show, critical, critical. It's absolutely true. <clears throat> I experienced it yesterday, actually, um, um, where uh, in the corporate world, uh, they're being very conscious of the image they put across. Uh, and actually um, understanding that, you know, some people might just look at an image and it might not mean anything to them, but then someone else might look at it and go, oh, white privilege. Um, And I, you know, like we have to be more culturally sensitive um, and that's the the sort of line that corporates are taking. Um, Some quite genuinely, others not so much. Um, But one thing I'm seeing... um, is particularly white minorities speaking up about white privilege. And that, I think, is a beautiful thing. Like I have seen, and a great example, if you haven't seen it, um, is uh, Hannah Gadsby on Netflix. If you haven't seen her um, recently, watch her show. She talks about it constantly because she's gay um, and is considered a minority. And I so resonated with her and I was like, yep, and like if you can get a generation on board and get them to relate to you, that that mindset mindset shift is quite easy. Um, so just seeing things like this pop up in culture, I think, is is starting to give us that mindset shift. Um, so to wrap up, I want to um, go through um, some positive steps we can take to help people um, try and shift their beliefs and their mindset to one that is um, more um, supportive um, in a space like this. And I, I want to get your advice from both of you on, on what you could um, recommend for people um, to help shift some of those beliefs and, and boost their mindset. So I would say to go ahead and start taking a personal inventory of what your life looks like and how you're talking to yourself as you're moving through your life. Really get conscious, make sure your brain is where your feet are, 
And so as you're moving through your day and the people that you talk to, are they all like you? Do they all look like you? Are they all from the same background as you, et cetera? Because if they are, you may have built your world in this comfort place. And so really taking the inventory of what your seven days, 24 hours looks like and who's in it, who are you talking to the most? Because who you're talking to the most is building that lens of what the world looks like. And I would say to make one shift, shift into a different cycle of who it is you're talking to. Reach out to someone maybe you haven't talked to or maybe someone you need to know and start asking questions, especially if their background is different than yours. And if you're in a leadership position, it's critical you do that and look at your teams, especially Mm. if you're responsible for hiring talent. It's an area that I used to work in. And the bias around what is good fit comes up a lot. Mm. And fit is usually based on comfort. And comfort is based on what we know, what we see, and what we already believe is good, right, clean, and pure. And so checking on that is critical. Mm. That's where I would say to start. Yep. Um, And for me, it would be to know that if you are raised and educated in the Western culture, you have biases. You know, no judgment. It just is. It's part of how we are indoctrinated, that we will have biases. Um, And give yourself permission to not shame or blame yourself for having these biases. You're human. You have biases. So give yourself a break. Don't make it like you're a horrible person. You're not. You're human. And part Mm -hmm. of being human is that we are trained to have biases. Okay. So we put that out. And now we can breathe into, oh... So if I'm conditioned to have biases, what biases might I be having, you know? Um, And then you're able to not be defensive and not be worried about what would people think. Yeah, we all have it. We are all driven by biases. So now we get to wipe that slate and go, oh, all right, I'm a biased human being, part of the DNA of being a human being. Now... What do I want to do with that? And I can be gentle with myself and compassionate with myself as I now go, oh, I saw someone overweight and I made a a real big judgment about that. Well, that's a bias, right? And so now I'm able to kind of start unpacking things a little bit, um, figuring out where they they came from, who told me that, you know, where did I learn that that's not acceptable? Um, and I think that's, that's uh, one place to start. The second is to be willing to take the risk to be vulnerable with people, to have the conversations. Um, and I say, you know, start with the people that you know, that you're comfortable with, um, and be vulnerable and start talking about, you know, racism, start talking about some of the biases that you're noticing, um, And then when you're ready to have those conversations with people that are not part of your community, please have conversations with them as another human being and not a science project, Mm. you know? And I say that from the perspective of, well, 
I'll, I'll ask so-and-so to like maybe coffee and then I can pick their brain about what it's like to be black. No, that's, that's not the goal. The goal is to invite them to have coffee and just talk to them like you would anyone else because they're human. Um, so those would be really good places to start. Start with the self because who we are is projected often in what we see and how we perceive. So that's why I'm always looking at starting from within, um, being honest with ourselves, being loving with ourselves, because then that gives us permission to start doing the same outside. Mm-hmm. Wow, I could just sit and listen to you all day. Seriously, <laughs> I just could. <laughs> Couldn't you, Rashona? Oh. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, <sighs> definitely. We're tag teaming. I like that a lot, Rashona. It works. <laughs> Yeah, it does. We have to do this again. I think so. Mm-hmm. Ladies, I have to thank you so much for joining me on the Ethical Evolution today. I think today has been amazing. Um, we have really unearthed some things that I don't think have been talked about in an arena like this. And um, I want to thank you for being a part of that. I'm really honoured to be here, to have this discussion, to be open about it, to be uncensored and to be love as we um, talk about this and, and really just embracing humanity and as we go through this kind of messiness that we're in it together. So true. Thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about it and to be light in the darkness that exists. So thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ethical Evolution Podcast. If you're an ethical business owner, change maker or holistic healer who's determined to make a change in the world and you need support to spread your message, visit ethicalchangeagency.com to collaborate. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here. And I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, The Spanish Remixes, out now on Electric Cast Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Acid. Acid.